Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see changed lives, and we hope this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy the message. Hi guys, my name is Ryan. I am the Discipleship and Connections Pastor here at the Valley. Whether you're in the room or online, man, it is good to be with you guys. Well, it's summer. We're celebrating our country's independence in a couple of days. You know, sunshine, hot dogs, grilling. um, And we thought it was a great time to talk about suffering. Um, No, no, it's not a joke. We are talking about a series called Tough Times. But here's what I've learned in my life is that the things that you learn in the light are what help you get through the darkness. And so I know we're talking about tough times and it's summer, but the reality is all of us go through suffering. If you haven't, unfortunately, you're going to get your chance. And it's something that is really inevitable. So let me start off this way and ask you guys, by show of hands, how many of you guys like suffering? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody. Online, we've got somebody waving high, um, but I, I don't, I'm guessing they don't like suffering. Of course you don't, right? Who would actually like suffering? I don't like it. Any time in my life I've gone through a hard time, it seems like a waste of energy. It's mentally taxing. It's emotionally taxing. Even physically sometimes when you're in a time of suffering, it just feels like your whole life, even your body is unraveling. And honestly, I know some of you guys could uh, talk about suffering from a lot deeper place than me. I've lived a pretty good life, but I do know what it's like to suffer at least a little bit. When I was 23, uh, my dad passed away. So I was a full-fledged adult, but I got to be honest, um, there were so many moments of my life that I always thought my dad would be there. I thought my dad was going to be there when I got my master's. I thought my dad was going to be there when I got married. He wasn't there when I had my kids. There were so many moments of my life that my dad was and will never be at. And that's sometimes hard. Last year at 39, um, I'm 39, my mom passed away um, very, very unexpectedly. And it was an incredibly hard time. One of the last times I came here and preached, I talked about my journey with depression and suicide, and God has, has continually heals me from those thoughts and that struggle, but I faced it so many times, and I know I can always go through it again, and he's been faithful, but man, if I could just wave a magic wand and never have gone through any of those things, I would do it in an instant. In fact, I don't even like, like little suffering, like what we would call minor inconveniences. Like if I go to work and I forget my lunch, I feel like my day's ruined. Like I don't know about you guys, but like those little everyday sufferings are like if I get out 15 minutes late because my kids couldn't get their book bags on and in the car, I, I just, I have to fight against the feeling that like my whole life is ruined, right? Um, I've been dieting to try to lose some weight. Uh, I've, I've made progress. I'm kind of on like the hold phase, but I have to eat vegetables. And I think that's a form of suffering, honestly. Now, some of you are going to tell me that like, hey, if you just put them like olive oil all over them, salt and pepper, 400 degrees in the oven, listen, my shoes taste good if you put olive oil on them, okay? Like, I don't want to hear about vegetables. I know they're good for me. I like them well enough, but I still think it kind of counts as suffering. But here's the deal. You know you go through a lot more painful things than that. And here's the problem we encounter as Christians, but really non-Christians, you face this too. Real quick, take a little poll. Raise your hand if you believe that God is all good. If you're here today and you believe that God is all good, I promise it's not a trick. You're not being recorded. Absolutely. If, you, if you're here and you don't believe in God, that's okay. We're glad you're here. Raise your hand if you believe God is all powerful. 
Anybody, yeah. Now raise your hand if you hate it when pastors ask you to raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, those are my people. I appreciate it, okay? That, I think that's the last time today, so you're, you're welcome. Um, but here's the deal. All of us would say, yes, God is all good. God is all powerful. Then the obvious question is, if God is all powerful and he's good, then why does he allow so much suffering to take place? Why does he allow even things like earthquakes, tsunamis, natural disasters that not only sweep away the good and the right together, but children? So how as Christians can we believe that an all-powerful and a good God allows suffering? If you haven't wrestled with this question yet, you'll get your chance. This question is so big, so profound, it's so timeless that it literally has a fancy name. The idea of how do, we, how do we account for suffering and evil in the world with a good God, theologians call that theodicy. You can use that word with your friends. I know 4th of July, you're going to be lacking conversation. Just drop the word theodicy, two hours of conversation. It's great. I helped you out. But the reality is, even if you've never heard that big word, even if you never use it again, the hardest times in your life have probably been when you have asked that question yourself. In fact, some of you know somebody who is not a Christian because they just can't believe that an all-powerful and a good God would allow suffering. And if you're here today and you are a non-Christian, you're not sure about this Jesus stuff, there's a good chance that one of you even feels this way. It's not that you don't believe in the Bible, it's not that you don't believe in Jesus, but you know your own experience, and it just seems so hard to come to grips with. Every single culture and community, whether you're Christian or not, has to wrestle with this problem of evil. In American culture, our default stance uh, with evil is, is, we can fight against it. We can overcome it, right? Like, hey, we're being taxed and we're gonna throw tea over the side of the boat. We're gonna do our own thing and we're gonna overcome evil. That's what we do as Americans. And to some degree, that's a good thing. Like, I'm very thankful that we have doctors and scientists working round the clock to try to cure cancer. That is a good thing. We should try to prevent and eliminate suffering. But on the other side of the coin, here's the problem that you know about is that no matter what we do, we can't eliminate suffering. So I think sometimes as Americans, we are not ready to deal with suffering. In fact, a couple years ago, I watched a TED Talk that showed that America is the wealthiest, most healthy, one of the most healthy nations in the world, and yet we're also one of the least happy. And they explained the reasons for that, but one of the reasons they didn't give, which I do think is part of the problem, is that we expect that we can live a life without suffering, and so when it hits, we are caught flat-footed, we fall down, and it becomes hard to get back up. But in other cultures, in other worldviews, there's definitely a feeling that stuff happens, and then you die, suffering is a part of life, so just get over it, it's painful, it's hard, someday you die, just deal with it, suck it up, buttercup, right, is kind of the mentality. My wife grew up in Senegal and they had this tea ceremony where there were three rounds and this was the thing that kids would do to hang out. You would drink these three cups and she never knew what it meant until we got a cookbook. I opened it up and it said what the symbolism for each of these three cups of tea tea were. The first cup was very bitter and it stood for how life is bitter and hard. Get used to it, basically. The second cup, which was like the shortest round, was like, it is sweet like love. And the third round was very like weak and gentle. And the third round represented the gentle coming of death, right? This was literally a tea ceremony you would do on a regular basis. And it doesn't describe the culture of Senegal, certainly not of Africa as a whole, but embedded in their very culture itself was this idea that life is hard, 
then it gets a little bit sweet somewhere in the middle, and then you die, right? Like that, I don't know that you would package that and sell that at convenience stores, right? But the reality is at least they know it's coming. But the good news, let me tell you, before I tell you the good news, let me tell you the bad news. That no matter how much suffering you have faced, and some of you guys have gone through things that I not only can imagine, but that if I went through them, I'm sure I would question my faith as well. Some of you guys have been through incredibly hard things, but here's the really bad news. No matter how much suffering you've been through, you know more's coming, right? I mean, think about it. Not only someday are you going to face your own pain and death, but you are going to watch loved ones and people care about, you care about, die and you don't know who's next. And this is why they don't have me preach at Troy too often, I know. I know, you're figuring it out already. But here is the good news of Scripture and good news of the book of Job's as we dig dig into this Tough Time series. Job teaches us that we don't have to accept the false optimism of American culture when it comes to suffering, nor do we have to accept the pessimism of other cultures that say there is no hope, you will suffer, then you die. In scripture, they, it's very honest that suffering is real and hard and it happens, but scripture gives us tools to not only face suffering, but to move through on the other side and thrive afterwards. And so today we're gonna look at the book of Job. Turn to page 402. As I tell you, when this question hit home for me. I was 24 years old, I had just lost my dad. And the power went out much like it did last night and me and Jamie had just gotten married, no kids, we're living in an apartment. We come outside of our apartment since there's no lights anywhere and our neighbor came out too. Her name is April and we knew her name but we didn't know her that well yet. She began to tell me the story of how she used to go to church and how she loved going to church with her grandmother and how her grandmother had pretty much raised her. Her parents were around, but not very involved. And her grandmother was this Christ-like example, not only her provider and protector, but her grandmother discipled her, brought her to church, loved the Lord more than anybody else. She was her true parent. And then her grandmother got sick. And she told me how her grandmother prayed how the church prayed, how she prayed, and, as in, as, and her grandmother still died. Sitting outside, power out, her kid with her, me and Jamie talking to her, she said, and that's when I stopped believing in God. I'm mad at him, and I don't believe in him. And quite frankly, she said, if God could allow the most faithful, godly woman I ever knew to die, how could I follow a God like that? And that's what suffering does to us, Right? At one level, it makes us mad at God and doubt his existence. And I know those are two contradictory things, but the reality is when you're going through it, those are sometimes the two things that we wrestle with the most and sometimes at the same time. And I gotta be honest, I did not know how to respond to her because I kind of understood because my dad had literally just died at this point, just months earlier, and I remember going through those same questions, that same pain. She had given up on her faith. I was trying to move forward in my faith, but I understood the temptation to say, God, if, I, if this is going on, I don't know that I can keep going. I don't know that I can keep following you, God. You see, the main question that Job answers is, can you suffer and still follow God? April's answer was no. And so let's talk about how do we wrestle with that question? 
Now, before we hit Job, I wanna just very briefly cover a biblical theology of suffering and pain because these were some of the answers that I was tempted to give April and they're true, but in that moment, they felt like they were not enough. In Genesis chapter one through three, it shows us that God created the world to be a place of goodness and life, but human rebellion brought about death and suffering into the world. The Garden of Eden was made to be a place where there would be no pain, no hardship, and yet humans decided we can do this thing better than God, and so they rebelled against God, and as a result, death and evil and sin and suffering entered into the world. It explains why there is evil and death in the world, but obviously it does not explain why a good person gets suffering and some bad people live very, very easy lives. But then in Proverbs, it talks about this issue of evil again. And Proverbs' answer to the, to the problem of evil is, God has ordered the world according to wisdom, so people often get what they deserve. Now, it's very important to notice that word often. Proverbs talks about if you are diligent and hardworking, you probably will get the job. You'll probably get the promotion. That will often be what happens. If you're lazy, don't show up to work on time, don't do your responsibilities, complain and gossip, most often you will lose that job. Proverbs talks about if you live a good and right life, most of the time good things will happen to you. But if you've lived life longer than two days, you've probably learned that that is not always the case. And literally next to Proverbs in most of your translation is the book of Ecclesiastes. And it gives the other side of the coin. It says that life is unpredictable and uncertain, so take joy in the everyday moments of life. One of my favorite verses in Ecclesiastes, it says, is that the race does not always go to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to us all. Ecclesiastes is honest that yes, most of the time there's a clear cause and effect in life, but oftentimes you work very, very hard, you do something exactly right, and things are still hard. Then the New Testament comes in and it clearly articulates that we have an enemy, the Satan who opposes God and his good plans for humanity. Ephesians 6 and John 10.10 10 talk about this. John 10.10 10 says the thief comes to kill and destroy and then Jesus says, but I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. That as Christians, we do have spiritual beings that wage war against our desire to do good things, to follow God. But then in the New Testament, Jesus says, Coming to earth also shows us that Jesus is bringing his kingdom and will often remove disease and pain. But just like in Jesus' day, where he healed many, many people and others he didn't, we face that same tension here. Uh, I'm at the Pickle campus, so I know what they go through more, but there was literally a guy at our campus who came to us, was struggling with alcohol addiction. His liver was dead, and they told him um, that it's going to die. You're going to need a transplant. We will not put you on the list because you're an alcoholic. We prayed for him. He got sober and clean. And literally in, in, in about six months, his doctor said, this is a miracle. Your liver is alive. It is functioning. You do not need a transplant. And to this day, that man is healthy and well because the power of prayer. But we've also prayed for people and then they've died. And it's hard to understand why God picks this one and not the other. And I get that. And then in Revelation, Jesus, it talks about Jesus will return and all evil will be destroyed. We will be resurrected and those who have said yes to Jesus will live for and with God in a renewed heavens and earth with no more pain and no more suffering. This is the picture of suffering that the Bible gives us. But honestly, even the answers in this that I knew, I did not feel like I could share with April. 
It felt like a religious platitude, even though it was true, just to say something as silly as, well, everything happens for a reason. God has his plan. She was in a moment of pain and despair, and she had given up on God. That's what I love about the book of Job and how it's not asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Job is asking the question, can you suffer and still follow God? So read with me Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes and on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of fasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. We get this image of Job as a guy who has it all. He's a man of character and righteousness. Not that he's sinless, but he's literally the greatest man in, in his time period, in his day and age. We don't know the time, location, or setting. Job is not an Israelite name. He is literally outside the people of God, but somehow he knows God and follows God better than all the Israelites. He's a man who is righteous. But then it also talks about not only does he have righteousness, but he has the riches. It tells you about three different types of animals he has, and we just assume that means he's a farmer who's diversified his livestock because that's the culture we live in. But actually, in those days, each of those sets of animals represent a different successful occupation. That's like if I were here today to tell you that I, that I own a $1 billion tech startup, that I'm the chief medical surgeon at Chicago Hospital, and I get paid $20,000 every time I speak. Get paid a lot less than that. Uh, uh, just in case you're wondering, um, but none of those are true. But that's what Job is telling us. He literally doesn't have one successful career. This man's got three. He is literally the most righteous and rich person you know. He is like Billy Graham mixed with um, uh, Bill Jobs, or Steve Jobs. There we go, Steve Jobs. Billy Graham mixed with Steve Jobs. Billy Graham mixed with Bill Gates. There we go, alliterations, my friend. But here's the deal. It doesn't matter how righteous, it doesn't matter how rich you are, you cannot always avoid suffering. And that's a hard truth for us to handle, but that's what happens in this passage. Let's read verse six. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one else like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house hold and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout this land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Let me explain what's going on in this passage. 
Much like a large business, a kingdom, or a church staff, God runs through creation through a staff team. He's the one who's all-powerful, but in this passage, it says the angels, or if you look in the Hebrew, it says the sons of God came before God. And he's, he, he kind of runs the heavenly realm through them, through earth. Obviously, he wants to run it through people. And his staff team comes, but there's one guy there that's different than all the rest. In many of your translations, it's a name, but actually in the Bible, it's always a title. It always has a definite article in front of it in the original languages. It says the Satan, which means the accuser, the opposer, or the one who's against, comes to God, and God says, hey, the Satan, Mr. Accuser, have you considered my servant Job? He's literally the best guy in the whole world. He's amazing, isn't he? And the accuser says, no, he's not. Of course Job loves you. Of course he's doing like his good follower of God thing because you've given him everything. You've given him money. You've given him family. You've given him all these things. He has 10 kids. He's got like everything you could possibly imagine and want and hope for. If you take anything away from him, he will curse you to your face, God. And surprisingly, God doesn't say, no, I know his heart. Get away from me, Satan. Get out of my court. God actually says, no, go ahead. Do anything you want, but don't touch his body. So what are we to make of this? One thing to understand is that the Satan demons are involved in human suffering. I mentioned that earlier, that the New Testament talks about that even more, but here we see that we do have a tangible enemy who opposes us. But here's the good and also challenging news, that Satan is not equal to God in this passage. Uh, and he can only do what God allows. If you look in this passage, Satan can't do anything except what God allows him to do. The good news there is, is when you feel like you're facing spiritual oppression or attack, God won't allow any, everything that happens to you is something that God has allowed. Ultimately, they cannot do anything they want to you. But the bad news here is, or the challenging, I'm going to say bad, but the challenging part is, is that sometimes God does allow it. And in that fact, and as you read on the book, we can't blame all of our suffering on the Satan in this passage. Because after chapter two, you never hear about the Satan again. Job and his friends talk for chapter after chapter after chapter. Nobody even mentions the possibility of the Satan. And when God speaks later, he never comes to Job and says, Job, what you gotta understand is there was this courtroom scene. Job never knows any of this. We cannot blame all of our suffering on Satan. The other thing we learned in this passage is that God uses suffering to test us. And I got to be honest with you, part of me hates that idea and it doesn't make sense because God knows what's in Job's heart. Like really, the story starts off and God says, have you considered Job? He's literally the best. God knows what's in Job's heart. So why does God test, it, test us? Why does he allow us to go through trials and testing? And I think we have to think of it using a metaphor that most of us are aware of. Think about a teacher. If you're a teacher, you know your students. You probably know that kid in the class who always studies, who knows the fact, who is ready for that test. And when you give that student a test, it is not to make them fail. It is not to push them back down. A good teacher gives a test to a good student because that teacher wants that student to know that they know the information. They want that student to walk away with that A, with that confidence that they've put in the work, that they now know who they really are because they've gone through a test. But also giving that student a test lets, lets 
their family know that they're capable, lets the school know that they're capable, and eventually lets their future employer know that this is a capable person. You see, God often tests us to show parts of our character that are mature and awesome and right and good, but he also allows tests to come into our life so that he can open up our hearts and do surgery that is desperately needed. When my father got sick, I remember um, at one point when he first got sick, I thought, okay, this is hard. It, it, it shook me to my core, but I kind of was like, okay, God, I'm going to trust in you. And my prayers reflected that. He'll get better, I thought. And when he didn't, over the next course of, a, of about two years, I, I continually prayed to God and said, God, please heal my dad, but not my will, yours be done. And as my dad had moments where he got better and then sicker and then more sick and sick, 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 I remember just thinking, this isn't going to end well, but God, I trust in you. And then my dad died. And I remember throughout that whole phase thinking, God, I'm going to keep, this hurts so bad, but I'm going to keep following you. But then I was in graduate school learning to be a pastor, and my dad had passed away just weeks ago at that point, and I had all my final papers due, and they had given me extensions, but there was one paper, I'm coming up to the deadline, and I can't get it done. I'm stressed, I'm under pressure, and I, and I was in my house, it was just me and my mom. My mom was asleep. I went down to the bottom of the house, and I started yelling out to God, God, I came from a rich family. I was going to be like a doctor, a lawyer, an airplane pilot. I was going to have lots of money, but you called me to go into ministry, and I did it, and this is so hard. I led my dad to Christ, and a year later, he's dead? Like, what's that about? I remember telling God, like, seriously, I'm working on this paper, and I can't do it. I'm never going to be a pastor. God, you, I just, this paper, I just want to get an A on it, God. Like, why can't you just send Jesus or an angel? I'm sure they'd be great at typing out this paper. Just send them down to do this. God, this is so hard. This is more. Why are you doing this to me? And I remember in that moment, not that I heard an audible voice, but I felt God speak to me. You know, Ryan, your dad's been dying for two years. This is the maddest you've ever got. And you're saying the word paper a lot more than you're talking about your father. It was in that moment God began to reveal to me some academic idolatry in my heart. And a part of my character was, I can lose somebody I love, but don't let me get a B on a paper. Talk about messed up idolatrous priorities. And I had to wrestle with that and my feelings of wanting to be perfect all the time. And I had to, I had to really deal with that. You see, when you go through a trial, there will be things in your heart that you see that you are stronger than you ever thought, but then there will be times when God uses that trial to show you something. He will open your heart through pain and take out a bad thing because it's what you need to come closer to him. The other important thing to notice in this scripture we just read is that suffering doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong. Don't get, I mean, understand me clearly. Sometimes if you do something wrong, you will face the consequences. Sometimes we suffer because we did something stupid. I remember when I had a teenager I was ministering to and they wanted to get together for coffee. I hadn't seen him for a while, but they had gotten in a, a life or death accident and they almost died. They had to be lifelighted literally from a helicopter to like a couple hours away just to save their life. And he sat down with me and he started telling me how he was mad at God. How could God allow me to do this? Why does God allow people to suffer? And I remember um, not knowing what he had gone through, not knowing anything about the accident. I started to ask questions. I said, well, what day was the accident? And he said, you remember that, that ice storm we had that they canceled school? 
And then he said, and there was like a police level four emergency, you know, on, on the road. And I went out because I didn't have anything else to do. So I wanted to have some fun in my car. So I was driving around 100 miles an hour. And I took a left turn. I was, took it too fast. And I went into a telephone pole. And I had to find a gentle way. And I, to this day, I don't remember exactly how I put it. But I had to have a gentle way of saying, listen, buddy, I know what you've been through is horrible. And I wish you didn't go through that pain. But like God wasn't the one who handed you the, you, God wasn't the one who got in that car. That was you. It wasn't God's foot on the gas pedal, right? You literally had your school tell you it was too dangerous to drive. You had the police tell you it was too, the county tell you it was too dangerous to drive. And you were out there, you passed how many speed signs before? Like this isn't a question of how can God, like you should not be blaming God for your action. You should be praising him that you're still alive, but the reality is sometimes we go through suffering and it's not your fault. I'm a parent of two kids and every time my kids, whether it's bullied, problems with their homework, whether they're having emotional struggles, I always assume that I'm an awful father and some of you are probably there too. That every struggle people around you go through, every struggle you faced, you assume it's your fault. Like the classic example of parents who get divorced and the kid assumes that it was their fault. You can suffer and it's not your fault. But what Satan does to us sometimes is we start suffering and we assume that it's our fault. And so not only do we have to suffer, but we do suffering and shame together and it makes it worse. It makes it harder to look to God. And to be honest, the only way to tell the difference is through discernment. But here's the reality. Some people, and some of you might be here, and it's okay. It's not, it's just kind of how we're built, I think, sometimes. But some of you are of a, of a more prideful personality, and you're pretty sure you've never done anything wrong, right? You all know those people, and if you don't know that person, then, you know, you might be that person. Just warning out there, right? But, you know, ask your friend or your spouse. They'll tell you the truth. And, um, but the reality is some people just assume nothing's ever my fault. You need discernment. Sometimes you need somebody to help you to see, no, this really is your fault. You messed up and you're paying the consequences. But some of us have like a, a depressive personality and we assume that everything that happens in the world is our fault and we feel guilty. My youngest son has, or my oldest son has that personality. I have this personality. Even though I wasn't born, I remember one time thinking, maybe I'm responsible for World War II, like when I was a kid, right? And that's not the case. So how do you tell when you're suffering if it's your fault or if it's just happening? It's important to quite frankly read scripture. If you don't have any friends and it's because you're getting drunk and you're awful to be around, then it's, that suffering is probably your fault. But if it's not tied to any sin you're doing, then sometimes bad things just happen to good people like Job. It doesn't mean that God is mad at you. It doesn't mean that he's punishing you. Sometimes bad things just happen. And let's read what happened to Job in his bad time. Chapter, verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the child formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. 
At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. If you read each of these things that happened to Job, what you'll actually notice is, is that first of all, Job is being persecuted from every single corner of the earth, west, north, south, and east. Every single place on the globe literally comes in to make his life awful. These, these, these trials and these, these, suff- these horrible things that happen to him are so bad, he knows it must be God, and he responds, and this might be, The word for some of you today, Job goes through suffering and he responds with both lament and praise. Job doesn't hide his pain. He shaves his head, which was a symbol of pain and suffering, right? In our day and age, you can shave your head um, or you might not have hair. It doesn't mean you're suffering. It just means that God only created so many perfect heads and the rest he had to put hair on, right? But the reality is in that culture, shaving your head was a way to say I'm suffering. Tearing your clothes was a way for everyone to know that I'm going through intense pain. Falling on the ground and worshiping was a way of saying, this is a, I can't even stand anymore. My life is so hard. It is perfectly okay when you're going through suffering to cry out to God. You are not going to bruise God. God, this sucks is totally an okay prayer language yelling out to God, telling him that this is awful, you can't stand it, you can't take another day of it, that is totally a biblical thing to do. But also don't forget to praise. Job says, naked I came, naked I will depart. In other words, saying I was helpless when I was born, I'm helpless now, but I will still praise God. Even if you're in the worst suffering in your life, you can still find things to praise God for, you can still find things to thank him for, and we need both. I know some people who all they do is praise, all they do is thank God for all the good in their life, and what they do is all the pain, all of the lament, they stuff it inside, and what happens is, is when you numb yourself to the pain in your life, you also begin to numb yourself to joy, goodness, love, happiness, because your body, if it's going to numb emotions, it's going to numb them all. It cannot just numb one. And so people who do not learn to lament often become bitter, disappointed, or just numb to everything around them. And if they they leave out all the suffering, if they hold in all the pain, they also put up a wall that does not allow love and wisdom and truth to get through. But if all you ever do is lament, you will find yourself depressed and in a very dark place. You also have to praise and thank God for what he's doing. You have to do both. So let's talk about this main question that Job's asks. Can you suffer and still follow God? The answer is yes, but it's actually more than yes. As Christians, we don't run to suffering. We don't look for ways to, to cause suffering, but we also don't run from it. Suffering is an, an essential spiritual discipline. If you want to get close to God, you can read your Bible, go to church, and pray, and yet suffering has always been one of those things that God uses to bring us closer to him. It is the spiritual discipline that you don't seek out, but that it comes to you. You can not only suffer and follow God, but in order to follow God at your deepest level, it is going to take suffering. It doesn't mean that if you've lived an easy life, you're not a follower of Jesus. But what it does mean is, is that God is going to use suffering in your life to bring you closer to him. The American view of suffering is to either fight against it or deny it or ignore it. 
And ultimately that leads to a false optimism that will let you down. But other cultures and maybe a more secular response would be just to assume that all life is evil, it's awful, nothing good will ever happen, and you can be happy about the good things, but that you can just accept that ultimately life ends in tragedy. The good news of the gospel is, is that we don't have to be pessimist or optimist. The famous missionary said this. His name was Leslie Newbegin. Newbegin. He said, I am neither an optimist or a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. In other words, what he said is, I'm not going to pretend that suffering doesn't exist. I'm not going to pretend that everything is okay, nor am I going to pretend that there is no hope. I am going to know that when suffering comes, I have hope in Jesus and his resurrection and in his life. Because the reality is, what God will use suffering to bring you into deeper intimacy with him. Every diamond you have ever seen comes from a piece of coal that was put under pressure. About a week ago, they had this fair at Piqua at the mall. Some of you probably saw it. At that fair, they had this bar that you could hold on to, and if you could suspend from this bar for over two minutes, you pay 10 bucks to try, you get 100 if you win. Well, I, I do work out, but I don't keep it, I'm not, you know, nothing to be impressed with, so I went ahead and YouTubed it to figure out how to do it and break, beat the system, okay? That's how I roll. So I watched this video and what they showed us is that the bar actually spins, it's a trick. So when you grab the bar, like a normal person grabs a bar with your thumb over your fingers, it rotates and it causes so much pain and so much suffering that you have to let go of the bar. Very few people in the world could do it holding it like that. But then the guy on the internet said, if you do a hook grip, you can hold on. What a hook grip is, you take your thumb and curl your fingers over it. Now here is the good news is that a hook grip is much stronger. You can actually hold onto the bar, and when you use a hook grip, I won't explain the physics, but when you use a hook grip, the bar actually cannot spin on you. It no longer will spin, so it neutralizes that. Here's the problem with the hook grip. It hurts like crazy. Your thumb will feel like it is going to rip off. It will not, but it's gonna feel like it's gonna rip off. Well, I didn't have the guts, but I did go home and try it out. And I used a hook grip and had my kids count for me. And I literally made it to two minutes and 15 seconds. And let me tell you, I thought my thumb was going to rip off. That's what it takes to suffer and follow God. You hold on with a hook grip. You say to God, God, I don't care how bad it gets. I don't care what I go through. I am going to hold on to you. Even if I leave this world with nothing in pain and in a mess, God, I am going to put that hook grip on and follow you because I know something greater is at the other side. It's not $100. It's not even just going to heaven when you die, although that's true. The reward you get is deeper intimacy with God than you could ever imagine. An intimacy that brings peace and joy no matter what you go through. In the rest of this book, and you guys are going to keep studying it, Job goes through this spiritual roller coaster. He starts to question God's justice. He says, God, are you mad at me? God, do you hate me? He even at one point says, is God just a bully in the sky? And he says, God, I want you to defend yourself because I am right and I don't deserve this. And Job is right. He is right and he doesn't deserve it. But then God comes to him and he doesn't say, well, you need to understand this thing about Satan. God doesn't mention Satan. He doesn't give him theological answers so much as he says to Job, he starts asking Job questions. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job has no answer. He says, where were you when I created all the animals? God says, do you understand the grazing patterns of all the animals? 
He says, my favorite question in Job is God tells, asks Job, do you know who let the wild donkeys go free? I'm sure that's like the, the uh, that's where the Baja men got the idea for the song, Who Let the Dogs Out? You didn't know that was a praise song. God asks Job all these questions, and what's the point? God basically says, Job, the world is a beautiful and dangerous place. And quite frankly, it is more complex than you can possibly understand. God says to Job, if I just punished every single deed of evil perfectly, the world itself would not even exist. He says to Job, Job, like a nuclear physicist trying to explain how to run a power plant to a two-year-old, he says, it is far too complex for you to understand. What I need you to do is trust in my love, my character, and my plans. And instead of saying, God, that's not enough, here's what Job says at the end. Job 42, 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Now think about that. We already know that Job was hands down the most righteous person in all the earth. And yet after a time of suffering, Job says, now I know you. If you have been reading the Bible more hours than you can imagine, praying to God, more hours than you can imagine, going to church, worshiping, doing all the spiritual disciplines. Know that when you go through a time of suffering, if you put that hook grip on, if you refuse to let go of God, what you will find out, the God that you have read about, the God that you have prayed to, the God that you sing songs about, now you will know him like never before. And when that happens, God will begin to build your character into something that's beautiful. Suffering also builds your character. Hebrews 12, 7 says this, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. Now, please notice the words here. It doesn't say that all hardship is discipline. It says endure hardship as if it is discipline. In other words, it's saying God doesn't cause every bad thing that you go through, but every time you do go through a bad thing, use it as an opportunity for God to build and strengthen your character. I once knew a guy who the last 15, 20 years of his life, his wife became terminally ill. And it started with her not being able to leave the house, then her not being able to leave the bed, and then her not being able to do the most basic human functions. And yet this man, he had plenty of money. He was very wealthy. He could have totally found the best nursing home in the world for his wife. But he was still physically well. He had the the physical ability. He cared for his wife for the last 15 to 20 years of his life did everything for her, everything he could. When he needed help, he had an at-home nurse come in one day a week just to help and assist him. And I gotta be honest, when he talked to me about how to love my wife, I listened. I never heard that man complain once. All I ever heard him talk about was how much he loved his wife. And it never seemed like a trial when I was watching him. I'm sure he had times of lament and pain, and yet time and time again, he would only talk about how faithful God was and how much he loved his wife. And I gotta be honest with you, if you think of the person you know in your life who has the most character, the person you admire, they probably got it through suffering. Diamonds are cold that's been put under pressure. You lift weights, you literally make yourself weaker by subjecting yourself to suffering just so when it heals, you're stronger. 
It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean that you need to want more and more suffering, but it does mean that God will not waste a single ounce of your suffering. So can you suffer and still follow God? The answer is yes. But the reality is when you're in suffering, there is going to be times when you are over here and you're walking away from God and suffering. Then you're going to bounce back and walk towards him. You're going to go here and then you're going to go there. It's not important what phase you're in. The important thing is whether you run away from God or go close to him, the important thing is, is where you choose to land. It's putting that hook grip on and not letting go of God because he has and never will let go of you. So here's some ways to respond today. As the team comes to lead us in worship, here's some things that you can do. You can light a candle. When you come up here and grab one of these candles and light a candle, it is your way today of committing to holding on to God no matter what suffering you're going through or will go through. It is that commitment to say, God, I will put on that hook grip when I go through a hard time. You can give. We have a joy box over there and located elsewhere. Some of you are going through financial suffering, and when I feel like the economy is gripping me tighter, one of the best things I can do for my heart and my mind is to say, I'm going to give as an act of trusting in God. I may be suffering financially, but you're going to take care of me. Some of you today, we're going to stand when we sing this song, and as we worship, I want to give you permission not only to sing the songs, but to lament what you're going through and praise God, do them both. If you want to come over to the cross and write either a praise to God or a lament and stick it on the cross, man, you are free to do that. If you're going through a hard time and you just need to pray and need someone to talk to, we have altars down front. You can come down here and pray and we have people who if you want someone to pray with you, they will be here for you. And finally, I want to challenge you today. One way you can respond is by taking communion. Communion is your opportunity to fix your eyes on Jesus and be consumed once again or even for the first time by his love. You see, I've asked the question multiple times today, can you suffer and follow God? And the, a good answer is yes, but there's actually a better answer than yes. The answer to can you suffer and still follow God is Jesus did. Not only did Jesus follow God despite his suffering, Jesus followed God through suffering. And whether it's your first time at church or your thousandth, I want you to take communion, if that's how God calls you to worship today, as a reminder to allow his love, his suffering on the cross, to sink so deeply in your heart and mind, not just to forgive your sins, although Jesus does that, but to remind you that he suffered, that he followed God, and he wants to empower you to do that as well. It is important to remember as we talk about tough times that Jesus is the one who suffered for us. He is with us in our suffering and he calls us to suffer with others. And so I'm gonna ask all of you guys right now in your seats to stand up. And then when I step down, I want you to have permission to just worship God in any of those ways on the screen. May you leave here today and know that whatever suffering you face ahead, you do not face it alone. That you are able to put that hook grip on and endure everything and come out on the other side, not because of your strength and your power, because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, but his sacrifice, his love, his power that he wants to impart to you, you have to say yes to, either for the first time or the millionth time today. So worship as God calls you to respond. 
and do what helps you connect with God today. May the Lord bless you in your suffering and make you more like Jesus. For joining us today. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app to stay connected with all things the Valley. And if today's message impacted you, share it with a friend, because changed lives change lives.